Welcome into the Crawford Talks, another edition of the Crawford Talks. He is Jay Kaplan. I'm Mike Meltzer as we hopefully move closer and closer to the start of the 2020 season. Obviously, these next two point, you know, one weeks are going to be very interesting uh, before opening day against uh, Seattle. Coming up in this episode, you will hear from Corey Brock, who is the athletics writer who covers the Seattle Mariners. We'll get a sense on what Seattle, what people are thinking in Seattle, what the expectations are going to be, uh, and that is going to be the team that the Astros play first in the 2020 season. Again, hopefully starting on the 24th, that Friday at 810. Jake, here's what I want to do. Five takes on the Astros 2020 schedule, which we found out about on Monday night. The first thing, the start, your initial takeaway on the six-game homestand four against Seattle and two against the Dodgers. I am fascinated by that second matchup because I feel like there is going to be a ton of anticipation in Houston and especially Los Angeles for those games against the Dodgers. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, I mean, they literally got like the most, the the worst team. (laughs) Like if you're trying to generate excitement, uh, the worst possible first opponent in the division and maybe in, in the whole West, and I guess the Giants might be worse than the, the Mariners. And then they go from that to arguably the best team in baseball. Uh, definitely a top three yes. team. Um, and like they've won the NL West 20 years in a row, it seems like. So, um, yeah, it's going to be like an appetizer. The Mariners series is going to be like an appetizer for a four game appetizer for a two game Dodgers series. Uh, the first time the Dodgers will have been at Minute Maid Park since game five of the 2017 World Series. Not the first time the two teams have played since the 2017 World Series, but obviously the first time they've played since the revelations about the Astros sign stealing in 2017 came to light last offseason. Um, so, yeah, I think the start will be will be interesting. Um, and that that two gamer against the Dodgers will definitely be the highlight on everyone's calendar. Yes, and the, the way I look at it is is this. Um, I think the home road disparity, if one exists this season, is something that, that you and I can definitely talk about over you know the course of this episode because it's so damn weird to analyze. Um, but remember, the Astros went eighteen and one against the Mariners in twenty nineteen. Like they absolutely cleaned up against that team, and you figure to get as many wins as possible this season, obviously, uh, they'll need to do... They're not going to get to that level, of course, against Seattle, but like those are going to be important games to get out to a, to a good start this season. And the other thing I was thinking about, looking at the way these things match up, so Justin Verlander, we think, is going to be the opening day, opening day starter, barring something unforeseen. I saw, Jake, that Clayton Kershaw was named the Dodgers opening day starter. Are we thinking that it's going to be Verlander and Kershaw in that second game of those two, or is it unclear at this point? Um, I mean, I would guess. I mean, I'd have to pull up the Dodgers schedule real quick um, to see how many games they play in that span. Um, if you if you think this is uh, listen to me type might make for a good show, we can do that right here. Uh, <laughs> I like it. I'm doing the same exact thing as you are right this second because uh, they actually start on the 23rd against the uh, against the Giants, right? Yeah. So I don't think you go four man rotation in the first. Um week of the season right because you're still getting into the swing of things here i agree so let's see their first game yeah it would still be their 
there's yeah they play the same amount of games before that series that the Astros do a four game they play a four game series against the Giants so yeah it should match up the 29th on national TV should be Verlander Kershaw um, which would be fun um, they did not match up in the 2017 World Series. So they did not match up. Yeah, that's I don't know right. if they've ever matched yes. up. I mean, that's because Verlander was in a different league for so long as Kershaw. Um, so that would that would be really cool if that lined up that way. Uh, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but um, I had a radical thought about this. And yes, I was going to ask you about this. Yes. So this is not going to happen, right? Like no one does this, um, but maybe they should or at least consider it. So every starter is theoretically going to make 12 starts. Right, every starting pitcher, um, mm-hmm. it's it maps out evenly um, with the sixty game season. So if Zach Greinke is going to make twelve starts either way, what if you bumped him from the Mariners series and pushed him to the fifth game of the season, which is the first game of the Dodgers series, so that you're getting Greinke and Verlander as the two starters in the Dodgers series, and then. You know, you still have Verlander opening day and your your next three starters against the Mariners, who are still probably better than the Mariners starters um, in most cases. Um, I don't know. Something I was thinking well, about. Well, let's do it this way. I, I don't think it's a radical thought because of the 60 game schedule and just how unique this is. Um, you know, right. I think right. I, I would say this. The division games are more important than the interleague games. Correct. Yes. Like they're a little, so, you know, would you say the bird in the, so I would say I I get what you're saying, but I think the bird in the hand with Seattle is worth more than the idea of them saving Granky for the Dodgers because, I mean, listen, here's the weird thing about Granky. He's, he's good. He's very good. He also was a little bit disappointing up until the first six innings of game seven of the world series. Uh, last year against the Nationals. So it, when I think about Granky against the Dodgers, it's obviously not some sort of lock that they win. It gives them a better chance. I think probably the reason why they wouldn't do it is, A, it's probably a little bit too outside the box, and B, with this whole Josh James or Keedy not being there yet, they got to figure out who those other two rotation spots are as we speak. That's true. That's a good point. And, and your, your, your overarching point of like, the division games being worth more is pro- is the biggest reason it won't happen. But yeah, it would be fun. Greinke played with it, a lot of those guys in LA. Pitched he's pitched against them a million times in, in as yep. a Diamondback. So I don't know. It would make for better better theater. But you're right. It won't happen. I mean, I am very intrigued to see, especially with you know who's in and out the next couple of weeks, what Dusty Baker says about the starting rotation, especially with the question marks. Uh, take number two on the schedule. The 8-10 starts, Jake. This is something that stood out to a lot of people uh, on Astros Twitter on Monday. They look at this schedule and they say, and they said basically, what the heck is the deal with all of these 8-10 starts? Usually the Astros at Minimate are starting at 7-10, pretty standard in your local time zone. In this case, 60 games, they have 25 starts uh, where the game time is 8-10. And the way I'm looking at this, I think it's because they want to maximize the television window. So, for example, the Astros opening day, Friday the 24th is against Seattle. That's at 8-10. Obviously, Pacific time zone, two hours back. So they want to, I think, get as much of the audience in the central time zone and the Pacific time zone. Uh 
I'm of two minds on this. One is, I think from a fan standpoint, I think people are probably desperate enough for baseball or any team sport that, you know, you put it in front of them and they'll watch. But people still need to wake up for work the next day. So I imagine it's not going to be that easy over the course of these hopefully 60 games. Yeah, I don't know what I think about it because, like, I do think it's great that, like, more people will be able to stay up and watch the West Coast games. Um, because those are tough for people in Houston, right? Like they end oh, yeah. so late, they start late. Um, it's just, it's in like, I don't know. It's just, it's tough. So I think overall, I think I come out in favor because of how many games they're going to play on the West coast. It's like, that makes sense. It's like at least 40% of their games. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, um, I mean, you're talking about yeah the games in you know for example uh, San Francisco, uh, the games against Anaheim, uh, the games in September against Oakland. Like those are all going to be much more manageable for people. Yeah, but the home games eight tens late. I mean, I would have pushed it up. Right. You know, like I like to go to bed early if I can. Uh, I'm, yes. I'm like an 80 year old man trapped in a 30 year old <laughs> body. So uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that, but um, I guess i get it uh i don't really get why they didn't do more day games in general though like around around mlb like i don't know i was envisioning like baseball all day every day all day every day right yeah why not like four games in a row like the playoffs like i don't know why i I mean maybe for travel that would be hard but like i feel like they could have been a little more creative with start times i agree especially because i mean again we're dealing with a pandemic so we don't know what anything's going to look like but you imagine that there would be inventory with major league baseball's tv partners whether it's espn or tbs or fs1 mlb network where you can put more of these games on the travel days the getaway days obviously you have to worry about the start times right but in the middle of that you feel like you don't have to really account for like rush hour traffic people getting to the ballpark you don't need to like fill up the ballpark and so you don't some there's no like businessman special at like 11 in the morning or noon uh you're just basically worried about getting the games in you're not worried about the fans getting to the ballpark right right yeah it's i don't know it's gonna be interesting to see how it goes um and there's still some 710 starts, right? It's not all 810. That's correct. In September when they when the Astros play the Rangers and the Diamondbacks, those will be 710 starts. Yeah, I completely whiffed on the start time thing. I wrote a piece Monday night like analyzing the schedule uh, as it came out and just like completely ignored all the time. So sorry to everyone uh, who read <laughs> that and and were was wondering about that, but uh yeah, it is it was an interesting wrinkle to this thing for sure. Third take on the Astros 2020 schedule, the end of the season. I know this was a big theme for you, Jake, in what you wrote. Uh, So 16 of 22 games on the road. That is not an easy way to end the regular season. Right. And for different reasons than usual, right? Like we usually think of the disadvantage of the road being uh, more so the, the, the road crowd. But now it's just being simply just like, the, the stress of being on the road during a, a pandemic, right? And and worrying about everything. And is it safe? Is it is it is it is it gonna go okay? Like all these different things. So I think I mean if MLB gets to that point in the season, um that's gonna be a tough a tough stretch for the Astros, even though some of their opponents might be you know, they do play the Mariners, for example, in that stretch. So it's not like all their opponents yep. are gonna be super hard, but like I think just being on the road will be the challenge. 
Here's what I'm wondering about. So you're obviously in baseball going to always be at a disadvantage on the road because they've got last licks. And I think that's always going to give them an advantage. I don't care if they're playing in front of fans, not fans on the moon, Jupiter, whatever, like they're going to have the advantage. I I think most people would agree on that. (laughs) What I can't really figure out, Jake is, and this is like, we, so I say this, we are going through obviously a super difficult time. It's super serious. We know all that, but I'm sure I can't be the only one, Jake, that I am like kind of desperate to watch these games because I am so completely fascinated by what this whole thing is going to look like uh, with no fans because I've never seen it. Like, yeah, I can watch European soccer and, and the Korean baseball league, but damn it, it's not the same thing as the sports I grew up watching, right? I have no idea about... Do the Astros have as much of a home field advantage when there are no fans in the stands? When they go to Oakland or they go to, you know, wherever, Colorado, San Diego, uh, do they have some sort of big road disadvantage because there's nobody there? That's what I can't figure out. Yeah, I don't know. I think in general, I'm more of like the home field advantage is overrated crowd in sports. Um, And I feel like I was right in the World Series last year. Uh, not to rub it in. Can't argue. <laughs> uh, but um, no, I mean, that was obviously a statistical anomaly. But like, I do think it is overrated. But this is just such a different conversation home road because of how stressful it is to travel during a pandemic for most people or for many people, I should say. Um, and and being away from family right now and all, all that it entails – um, staying in hotels, like I just, I think that's going to be the hardest part for, for these teams. Yes. I mean, I, I do think there's a disadvantage in terms of you're traveling, and all the stats say that you're losing energy, you're losing all these different things in your body. So I, I get that part. Um, and then you add in the pandemic, and that probably adds onto it. But as far as like within the actual game itself, except for the fact that they're batting at the, on the bottom half of innings, like I am curious to see how that's going to play out. So you know, typically when I think of a baseball team going on a long road trip, and all these road trips are going to be of like the full length variety. You're not going to someplace for three games and coming back. That's not happening in 2020 for obvious reasons. I, I'm just again, I'm probably repeating the same point. When I look at that ending the season 16 of 22 on the road. I think if it was a previous season from an Astro standpoint, it would give me more concern this season. It's way more of a curiosity, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I would actually be the opposite just because of how well they've played on the road in the, in these previous normal seasons that we've uh, experienced. Um, they have, but yeah, I don't know. It's going to, it's going to be fascinating to watch if, if it happens, uh, I should probably stop, being so pessimistic and and adding that caveat, (laughs) but I am pessimistic. Um, And yeah, it's, it's also like, we didn't talk about this, but like the Astros and Rangers travel a lot more miles than everyone else because of the division they're in. And I think it was 24 games. The Astros play in either California, Washington or or Arizona. Um, You know, obviously California and Arizona are, uh, have seen a, a, at least as of now, you know, who knows what it'll be like then, but as of now, I've seen a, a huge rise in, in coronavirus cases. Um, and the Rangers play 21 games in those three states. So those, those two teams are going to have by far the most travel. Um, and in, in their case, into a lot of states like Texas that, that aren't doing so great right now. Let me go to take number four on the Astros 2020 schedule. 
National TV games. The Astros, Jake, are on national TV four times. The July 29th game against the Dodgers, August 1st against the Angels, August 6th against uh, Arizona, and September 12th at the Dodgers. So two of the four Astros-Dodger games are on national TV game. On, are on national TV. Four felt a little bit light to me. Um, it's about 6-7% of the 60 games. I kind of feel like from baseball standpoint, since the Astros are obviously going to be the most hated team in the league, I would want to get, at minimum, all four of the Dodger-Astros games on some sort of network. ESPN, MLB, TBS, FS1, whatever the availability, whatever the TV deal is, I think it's a missed opportunity to not put those games to the highest exposure possible. I don't think Major League Baseball in general does a great job with this sort of thing. And what I can't honestly figure out is how the Astros situation compares to others. I think I had the Yankees at about seven national TV games, but don't quote me on that. The Too point late, is I already this. quoted I think, you. Well, that's fine. Uh, I, it could be a, a correction at some point. <laughs> Either way, I, I think given the storylines around this team, I think four of 60 is too low. Yeah, I guess I agree. I think it's slightly low because I don't know if six or seven percent is that much different than a normal season. Um, although, like you think about it, usually when the Astros are on national TV, it's against the Red Sox or the Yankees, right? Um, yep. August sixth against the Diamondbacks on national TV is super random. <laughs> that that is random. Like yes. you, I think you would like to see more Angels Astros. Given all the star power there, I, I think it would have been cool if they did like Astros Padres on national TV. So like, I don't know how many national TV games the Padres got, but like that team really interests me with all the young talent. Um, yes. Yeah, there's definitely more room in there to do a few more. I don't know how much, you know, I should have done more research before the show to see how that compares to a regular season percentage wise. Uh, but I, I guess I agree with you. Four seems a little light. Yeah, I mean, I think an easy way to do it would would be, again, it's not the biggest deal in the world, especially given how bizarre the season is, but I would especially think, even though the Mariners are, you know, probably not interesting nationally, like that first game, I mean, this is the first game these guys are all playing that actually counts in the standing since all of that came out, since all the Stein-Stealing revelations. It's the first time they've played a game that matters since Game 7 of 2019, one of the worst losses in franchise history, maybe the worst. Uh, I Like, that, that to me is another easy one. So those are just my two cents. I I think they should be on national TV a little bit more. So I'll I'll leave it at that. I, yeah, I don't disagree. I think, um, yeah, I think you make valid points as usual. I I try. (laughs) Last one, the fifth take on the Astros 2020 schedule. Interleague play. Jake, you wrote about this. This is probably more up your wheelhouse and your area of expertise. So to do a quick rundown, and if you don't know, we are here to inform you that there's only, you know, you're only playing this year in 2020, your division, and then the team in the corresponding div- division in the other league. So for this example, the AL West against the NL yeah, West. Yeah, to, to mitigate Astros, travel, right? To mitigate travel, <laughs> except when you're a team that doesn't really play in the same time zone as these <laughs> other ones. So the Astros will play three against the Giants, four against the Dodgers, six against Arizona, four Colorado, and three against uh, San Diego. Uh, I know one thing that stood out to you was the Giants are rebuilding only three games against them. How do you look at the interleague play and how that shook out for the Astros? Yeah, so like if I were to rank the NL West based off my limited knowledge of these five teams, the Dodgers are clearly one and the Giants are clearly uh, five. Uh, The Giants are really bad. And 
The Astros play only three games against them at all or at Minute Maid Park. Um, so that, I think that's a, that's a loss, you know, like in terms of like schedule building for the Astros. Yep. Um, you know, you would think that they would probably win at least two of those games, but, um, you know, then the other team they play three against on the road is the Padres, who I think are going to be pretty good. Um, you know, they, they're probably the second or third best team in that division. It's them or Arizona. Um, Arizona that plays six games against because they're their natural rival for some reason that makes no sense and color is that a, is that like a is that shit is that like a term of art did they actually say that they, didn't, they said it before you know they always play Arizona for some reason I mean like sometimes I guess it is Colorado <laughs> mixed in but like I don't know it's usually okay. one or Arizona one of Arizona or Colorado they play um, more frequently than the other AL or NL West teams. Um, I think the Rockies are kind of bad. Uh, I think they're the fourth best team in that division. They play four games against them. So I don't know. It could have been worse for the Astros, like in terms of the how it lined up. Um, but I think it could have been better also. Yeah, I can see that. I think uh, I think it was Tim Britton, uh, Jake, who did the analysis on The Athletic where he compared what the strength of schedule was going to be over 162 yeah. where that schedule was obviously set compared to what this one was. And he said in his statistical statistical analysis, uh, the AL West was the division harmed the most as far as where the schedule was in toughness to where it got to yeah. uh, with the shortened 60 games. Yeah, like a, in a perfect world, you'd probably want six games versus the Giants, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, yeah, I, I would say if you lopped off like... I think four against the Dodgers is good because I think it's good for Major League Baseball. I would say, yeah, lop off like three against Arizona and add the three to the Giants would be more of a best case scenario for the Astros. Yeah, although I do wonder if like the Arizona games, do they get more intriguing because of the Grinky factor now? Um, or maybe or is it is it? I don't know. Maybe they don't because he's not hitting. I don't know. Um I don't think the former Astros prospects will factor into that. Those maybe maybe there's an outside shot. One of them will, but um, yeah, I don't know. Arizona at Houston doesn't really do it for me as much as uh, you know the, the Padres series. For whatever reason, I think the Padres are going to be interesting. For some reason, one thing about the Diamondbacks that stands out to me, this is kind of random, is the end of the uh, 2015 season when the Astros went up there like the last mm-hmm. weekend and they were in that. And I, I think, were you covering the team then, Jake? No, I was on the Phillies beat, but I, I remember hearing about it um, the next year when they took their trip to Arizona. Yeah, I forget the exact details, but like they. <laughs> But like it was like it was basically the Astros trying to hang on desperately to the division. They failed to do that, but they got in the wild card game. So it was like looking at the the Astros and the Diamondbacks. The Rangers were playing as well, um, and they were playing the Angels, who were also competing for the wild card. And I just remember there was like this one game where the Astros won like eighteen to one or eighteen to four. Like they just put up like a thousand runs in. Uh, against the Diamondbacks. For some reason, that's like one random game that stands out in the storied history of the Astros-Diamondbacks natural rivalry. For me, it's that Cole game two years ago where he struck out everyone. Um, yeah, that, he was brilliant well, that night. He was, was unbelievable. Might have been Cinco de Mayo of 18, I want to say. It was 18, um, yeah. I was not there. I was actually in San Antonio 
to interview Josh James, who was in Double A at the time. Um, but I remember like following it and watching it as much as I could. And yeah, that was probably like, that's like a top five performance in Astros history for an individual regular season game. You think it's, you think it's that high? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he was a one base runner and he was great. I, he was utterly sensational. Yeah. And I, I do have a feeling, and this is not me going on a limb because it's a limited sample size. My last point on this, Jake, I'll make is with 60 games, considering all these interleague games that are sprinkled in, there's a really decent chance because it's compressed and all these games mean a lot that we could look back on some of these games against the Diamondbacks, the Padres, the Dodgers, and these might be keys to whether the Astros win or lose the AL West. We should do that. You know how like whenever a schedule comes out in any sport, we analyze it and talk about it, and then we make all these points and predictions, and then we never actually revisit them? Yes. We should revisit this this conversation after the season. I'm good with it, yes. As long as we can defeat COVID-19, or more realistically, keep it at bay for a couple of months to get these 60 games in, I agree. We will go back, and we will see whether this discussion is idiotic or it holds up to the scrutiny of this season. It'll probably be idiotic, like most of my takes, but (laughs) maybe they'll start Zach Greinke in the fifth game, and I'll be right. I doubt it, though. We shall see. So those are our five takes on the Astros' 2020 schedule. As we've been discussing, the first game they play is against the Seattle Mariners. This is coming up on the 24th of July. And for more on that, we're going to preview that series with Corey Brock, the athletics writer who covers the Seattle Mariners. We are excited to be joined now by my dear friend, Mariners beat writer for the athletic, Corey Brock. Corey. How are you doing, and how excited are you for Astros Mariners opening day, if it happens? Yeah, Jake, it's actually good to hear your voice. We I feel like we've been texting multiple times every day for the last, what, three, four months. So, uh, yeah, it's nice to know that you're still real and you're alive <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, yeah, let's get fired up for opening day. Um you know, it was funny when they announced that the Mariners were going to be playing in Houston um, for opening day, the 24th. Uh, the, like some of the first comments I got were, "Oh, the Mariners, uh, they're gonna, they got to hit, they got to hit the Astros batters." And I was kind of like, for a minute there, I completely forgot like why <laughs> someone would even suggest that, right? Like we're so far removed from, well, at least I feel like it. Maybe it's different for you, living and breathing it. But I was like can we just play the game? Why do we have to throw, <laughs> throw the ball at people? And I was like, oh, okay. The Astros. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I'm fired up. I'm fired up. I won't be there. I know you won't be there, but um, I'll be tuning in from afar and anxious to see what happens that night. Yeah. It'll be a new experience covering opening day for all of us to, uh, you know, First of all, no fans in the stands on opening day is super weird, obviously. Um, I remember Mariners were in Houston, I think it was the 2017 season for opening day. And it was, you know, that was, might have been the last time the Astros actually opened at home. They always opened on the road. And uh, it's just weird to think back to that, how packed it was in there and, and loud. And now there's going to be no fans and uh, reporters working remotely and, and all that. So, um you know, obviously, like we wanted to talk a little bit about like where the Mariners are, and obviously they are in a long-term rebuild uh, at this point. Um, what are what is kind of like? 
what is the best case 60 game season uh, for the Mariners, presuming a 60 game season can finish? Yeah, that none of their prospects that the guys they are banking on uh, for 2021 and beyond suffer a catastrophic injury. Basically, nothing about their win-loss record in 2020 really going to move the needle uh, in terms of the organization or even the fan base. I will say this. The organization has been very transparent about uh, this team's uh, rebuilding path, which they settled on after the 2018 season. And I think fans, by and large, uh, agree with or at least understand what the team is trying to do uh, with uh, building a, a roster with young, controllable players refilling the farm system with real prospects, something they hadn't had for a long time, and just sort of understanding that there's going to come a time when all these prospects, um, if you hit on some of them, you're not going to hit on all of them, they're going to arrive in the big leagues maybe around the same time. They seem to think that that will be 2021. And so at a point where teams like, let's say, the Astros uh, are maybe losing guys to free agency, George Springer, you know, who knows what happens with some of these American League teams, right? That the Mariners will be trending upwards when these other teams are leveling off. So it remains to be seen. It's still a tall order. Remember, this is a franchise now that has not made the postseason since 2001. That's the longest standing postseason drought. I got to get this right. In currently in North American sports. I, I feel like I've typed this a lot now. It's just, on, it's just you know, cut and paste at this point. Yeah. But, um, it's a you know the fan base is fairly apathetic at this point, um, but they I think they do understand what this team is trying to do. Corey, you mentioned the apathy. If the Mariners start thirteen and two again, like they did last <laughs> season, with a sixty game season, would people in Seattle be into it? Yeah, they'd lose their minds. Although you know what? Oh, that was such an outlier when that happened because we knew <laughs> the team was going to be horrible, right? But they yep. ended up catching these teams that weren't very good right out of the shoot. Um, you know, the Mariners were making a bunch of errors, just like everything that could go right did go right. But, you know, here's the funny thing. In a 60-game season, you have a 13-2 and two stretch. Maybe it's not at the start. Maybe it's in the middle. Maybe it's toward the end. But you string together enough of these wins, and we're going to see this happen, right? Like somebody's going to end up in the postseason uh, where you'll be left sort of scratching your head, like how the hell did these guys make it? Well, you know, they, they got hot. They had some funky things happen in a good way, and they were able to make it work. I just don't think one of those teams is going to be the Mariners. So Marco Gonzalez is the opening day starter, right? Um, yeah. Presumably against Justin Verlander. Um, and what's the rest of the Mariners' rotation? I mean, I guess um, that's a four-game series to open, so especially who, who's 2-3-4 in, in particular? Well, Jake, I'm not the manager, okay? So Pretend that you are. <laughs> okay. Well, and also, we do have to touch upon the fact that the Mariners were 1-18 against the Astros last year, right? Yes. I mean, that, <laughs> and I understand that we're dealing with two teams of uh, polar opposites in terms of uh, um, roster um, talent, for lack of a better term. But somehow, you think you play 19 games against someone that you're going to win more than once? But anyway... Um, the, the rotation, what it looks like. The Mariners are going to have a six-man rotation because hmm. I think this serves them in a couple different ways. First of all, you're not going to tax one guy in terms of innings. No matter how far these guys are going to wa- want to work in the games, 
uh, teams have to be pretty pragmatic about the number of innings they're going to pitch. So what it'll also do is allow the Mariners to look at uh, more young guys. They may even piggyback starters. So after Gonzalez, you have Yusei Kikuchi, a left-hander, Kendall Graveman, a one-year free agent guy, Taiwan Walker. Remember, Taiwan uh, mm-hmm. was originally drafted by the Mariners in 2010, made his debut at your ballpark in 2013. He's back on a one-year deal. Um, Justice Sheffield, the left-handed pitcher, he's one of the guys they got from the Yankees in the James Paxton deal. Um, and then Justin Dunn, who came over from the Mets a couple years ago in the Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz, Jared Kelnick trade. So uh, this, this season, to be completely clear, this is all about evaluation. Uh, and this was going to be the same no matter if you played 162 games or 60 games. They want to look at these young guys. They want to know by October 1st, hey, is this guy, is player X, is he truly going to be part of our future? And the only way you can find out is to let these guys play. Is the sense, Corey, that with a 60-game schedule, some of the Mariners' best prospects, are they less likely to play or more likely to play? Yeah, good question. Less likely now. You know, because you, you have a couple of factors here. You First of all, you have the arbitration clock. You'd be starting for some of these young guys, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And a few of them just aren't really uh, level appropriate for the big leagues at this point. I think if we had played 162 games, you would have saw pitchers Logan Gilbert, their first-round pick in 2018, and Kelnick, who reached Double um, A last summer, but is still very young as well. I think there's a chance you might have saw them later on in the year, but in a 60-game season, I don't see the point of it. Now they're part of the 60-man roster right now, and so they're going to be able to work on uh, some things when you know, when they, the team heads to Tacoma, the uh, the prospects that is. Um, and to sort of continue their development, whatever that looks like. It won't be nearly as good as if, you know, Logan Gilbert got 150 innings or Jared Kelnick got 450 at-bats. But the Mariners feel like they could still help these young guys out uh, even during this time. So um, it would have been cool. It were, You know what? It w- really would have been cool. And if we were in a situation where fans were, were able to come to the games, I think that would have led to a small spike in attendance, to be honest. I think People are really curious and really interested in these prospects because truly that's where the future of this team is. I am interested in Jared Kelnick, and I've been pronouncing it Kelnick for months, so thank you for for setting me straight. Kelnick, the second E doesn't doesn't matter. It shouldn't be there. there. (laughs) Um, What is – so he's about to turn 21. He is an outfielder who was a first – so he was like a sixth overall pick a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, what what have you seen of him personally in like limited looks? And also like what is um, the big deal about him? Like what why is what tools does he have that is making everyone so excited about him? Yeah, he's an interesting guy. You know, he was a draft pick of the Mets um, in that 2018 draft. But you know, here's an interesting story, and I wrote about this. And you can read about it on the athletic. Um, Please you know, do. a few days before the 2018 draft, the Mariners flew Kelnick out to Seattle for a pre-draft workout. Now, these aren't extremely rare by any means. They, they happen. The fact that this one happened days before the draft is kind of interesting. So they wanted to see what made this kid tick, what he was all about. His stock was rising. Uh, he seemed like an interesting guy. Well, they put him through the paces of a workout, I think, over the course of two days. And he just completely blew the doors off the front office guys, the scouts who had already gathered in town for the draft. Um, 
just extremely polished, good athlete, um, good bat to ball skills, um, good power, just a quick compact swing, uh, very confident, good makeup. Um, so when Kelnick got on that plane after that trip, the Mariners had a pretty good idea that he, they would, he would never be available to them when they drafted. And lo and, lo and behold, he was gone early in the draft. The Mets took him. So they've had their eye on him for, for a while, and they were able to get him from the Mets in that uh, uh, trade of the Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz uh, trade. So they're really excited about him. He touched three different levels last year, started at low A, went to high A, and then finished the year in double A. I saw him in Arkansas during the Texas League playoffs, and he didn't look like he was out of sorts or that he was overmatched by any means. I, I think this guy, um, you know, left-handed hitter, um, I think he's going to be really good. I think uh, he's going to have an opportunity to be a very special player. But, again, the, the sad thing is, and this is not unique to the Mariners, but, you know, he really could have benefited from most of a full season in double A um, to sort of advance his game and to continue his development. And maybe that would have led to a September 1st call-up. So I think fans are going to have to wait for another year to, to see these guys. But the Mariners still feel like, depend, you know, no matter the delay this year, that these guys are coming and they're coming fast. Corey, the first couple of days with the Astros, I feel like the big storylines have been uh, the delay in testing, which is created some issues. Jake reported Monday they had to cancel the Monday workout. Also, some guys who are out, who, are, who have not been there yet. Jordan, Al- Jordan Alvarez, Jose Urquidy, Josh James, among those guys. Have there been like one or two main storylines in Seattle this first these first couple of days? Yeah, it's not the testing. They've had no issues with that, um, you know, and really no issues with I, – I, I think today the – uh, the general manager, Jerry DePoto, finally said that there were three players that tested positive during the initial intake. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to be a situation that's going to harm them in terms of the roster moving forward. I think it's it's mostly been um, fans – and I tell you what, the team's been really smart about this. They've been streaming uh, the, the practice sessions, the workouts, and so it's given fans an opportunity to – kind of look in and get a chance to see these guys like Kyle Lewis and Jared Kelnick taking batting practice. And I joke with Jake all the time that, man, we are, <laughs> we're sure talking a lot about batting practice. You know yeah. what I mean? Like <laughs> batting practice is really nothing, but it's all we have right now. Right. So I think that's kind of cool. The Mariners will start playing some inner squad games, but um, on Friday, but really it's the, the number one storyline isn't so much about the big league roster in 2020. It's about, hey, how do the young kids look? And uh, they've been very proactive. They brought a lot of these guys uh, to camp as part of this 60-player pool. Um, like I said, they won't play, but uh, they seem to think that this experience here will eventually benefit them in the long run. I want to end on a on a happy topic for uh, the times we're in right now. Um so l- listeners of this podcast are probably uh, among the more diehard fans and maybe might be among those who would take a road trip at some point to Seattle. Um, Seattle, for me, as a, as a writer, is one of the cities I miss going to most this year that we're not traveling, uh, or at least I'm not traveling this year. Um, for those who it, – it's such a – it's a great city with great food. Like, for those who are going um, – in the in the future, let's hope the near future. But in the future, when when things are back to 
whatever our new normal is post-pandemic. Give us a few Seattle recommendations for listeners who might might visit um, your city down the road. Um, beer related or not beer? <laughs> I was I wasn't thinking beer, but we our heads are at different places right now. I don't know when I whenever I go to Seattle, I love walking around and I love going to the Pike Place Market and. Yeah. I always have great meals there and it's just, I don't know. It's like really happy place for me. It's a cool city. <laughs> with a lot of cool and unique neighborhoods. Ballard, the Ballard locks. Uh, it's kind of an old Scandinavian uh, town. Um, and this is all within the, you know, kind of near the city limits and all that. It's extremely walkable. Uh, the weather, you know, we get knocked for, um, for it raining here a lot, but truly summers in the Northwest are really beautiful and, you could take a ferry ride. You know, it's one of those deals where you can go to the mountains and you can go to the go go the other direction and go to the water um, to Puget Sound, and it, it's it's so cool. And I you know I grew up there, and uh, I've had an opportunity now in this job, like you, Jake. You go to a lot of these different cities, and inevitably, what you end up doing is kind of comparing it to home a little bit, right? It's it's probably not fair, but because you're only in these places for you know two three days, yeah. But, for my money, yeah, the, the quality of living in the Northwest is uh, is really good. I would highly recommend a trip uh, if any fans ever want to come up and catch a game. I think, uh, well, they'd be able to get tickets. There, those would be available. <laughs> and you know what? We have no humidity. So it's like the most wonderful thing in the world, right? Yes. Mike, have you been there? I actually have never been to Seattle. I was planning. I was planning to go. Well, I'm so I'm. A, you don't even know this about me, Jake. Uh, I even though I grew up in New York and Connecticut, I am a die-hard Michigan football fan because Ugh, they were always on yuck. TV. They were good. So Michigan has a game scheduled. I think September first against the University of Washington. My friend Paul Gallant does morning radio now in Seattle. He's a guy I used to work with. Uh. So my plan in my mind has been, okay, I, I didn't even bring this up to Paul, but I'm like, in my mind, I've been thinking, okay, let me let me go to Seattle. Never been there before. Now, of course, I'm severely doubting whether that game is going to happen. So that's a long answer to your question. I have not been there. I was planning on it, but then COVID-19 ruined it. I'm sorry. Hopefully they reschedule it to a point where it's the, whatever the next season when travel is safe. Yes, uh, I agree. Because it is, it really is, like, I had never been until I got on the Astros beat in 2016, and it is really just, it's a top five trip in all of baseball for me. Well, and especially if you, and Jake, I, I think I talked you into this, hopefully, for when the world comes back to normal here. Um, take the train, fly into either Seattle or Portland, spend a few days in each city, and then take the train to the other city. And uh, hmm. you really get a true taste of the Northwest that way. And, you know, in Portland, you may need a car because uh, you, you could drive out to the beaches, out to the, um, to some of those towns out there. And, or you could go East and you could be uh, somewhere where there's still snowfall in June or maybe even early July in the higher elevations. It's just, it's really cool and really unique. And we have the best beer in America, in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> I was going to actually do, I, I told you this, but I was going to go to Portland the first Astros Seattle series in, I think it was like late April, early May. I had booked the Amtrak ticket to Portland after the series to hang out for a yeah. day or two. And obviously those plans were scuttled, but uh, I definitely plan to, to do that leg of it uh, the next time I'm out there, uh, which is hopefully um, next year. Hopefully, but hopefully yeah. I guess we'll all see. Um, Corey, thank you for, for joining us. Hope you're uh 
You're staying safe out there. Hope your Peloton comes soon. I know you ordered one. Copying me. That's okay, though. Um, <laughs> well, we have, I, now I feel left out. <laughs> well, the Peloton's for my wife, um, but I got a Traeger, so it, we each kind of got... Uh, we figured we are going to be spending a lot of time at home, so we needed something to uh, occupy our time. Yeah. Peloton doesn't pay us for ads. We just, we're just Peloton fans. <laughs> you just love them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, thank you for joining us. Thank you for, for the insight on the Mariners and uh, stay safe out there. Thanks, buddy. Good to hear from you. Enjoyable visit with our friend, uh, Corey Brock, who covers the Mariners for the athletic Jake. My, one of my main takeaways, non-baseball wise, uh, once COVID-19 ends at some point, whenever, whenever that's going to be, I will take his advice and I will do that Seattle-Portland train deal. I don't think there are enough good trains in the U.S. And I don't know how fast that one is. They're usually excellent in Europe. Uh, but once this thing ends, I will do that Seattle-Portland thing. That that feels up my alley. Yeah, I am going to do it too. Um, you know, I've been, like I've said a few times in that conversation, I, I've been to Seattle a bunch, never been to Portland. And it's like one of the few places I really need to get to um, in the next few years. And hopefully we can travel in 2021. I'm kind of holding out hope. Um, yes. But uh, I guess we'll see. What What are you, uh, you know, what are you looking forward to the next few days before the next podcast, Astros Wise? They are going to start um, intra-squad games. Um, I'm, I'm never sure if it's inter-squad or intra-squad. Um, I'm bad at English. Same. Um, but they're going to start those on Thursday afternoon, um, which will be fun, and then um, play those for a few weeks. So what, what do you think you'll be looking out for the next few days before our next episode? For me, I'm curious what Dusty says about how guys look in terms of ready to play or not. And obviously, even though we can't go into the details of or speculate as to why this is the case, the big thing for me is going to be, okay, what happens with – Jordan Alvarez and Jose Urquidy and Josh James, because especially with those latter two, the longer this goes on, I think the more you and I at some point will have to have a conversation of like, okay, what does this starting rotation look like with the four and five spot, uh, four and five spots in the first couple weeks of the season? That's kind of what I'm looking at. Yeah, it feels like next week we'll have a better feel for opening day roster stuff, right? I mean, at least yes, we at least start to rule some people out if they're not there. Um, but it's just, uh, you know, I've been like tinkering around with a projected roster for an upcoming story. And it's it's really, right. it's really difficult right <laughs> now. Uh, it's probably more difficult than it's ever been just because of um, all the unknown about different players, um, you know, where they stand and, and why they're out. And, you know, we covered that in the last episode, but obviously uh, we will definitely be monitoring who's there and who's not. Um you know, in the coming days. And yeah, I'm curious to see how, how players look uh, or, or Dusty Baker's opinion on how players look as well. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of spring training games, right? And uh, yes. we don't know if they're going to have an official exhibition game before those Mariners games. So it might be these inner inner squad games might be like the, the best thing they got until, uh, till the regular season. We shall see. We'll obviously keep tabs on you know who's there, who's not, what the latest developments are. Our next episode is coming up on Monday. He is Jay Kaplan. I'm Mike Meltzer. This has been the latest episode of The Crawford Talks, an Astros podcast brought to you by The Athletic. <laughs>